Chapter Nine of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Nine, The Breaking Down of Webster. Hastings, sprawling comfortably in a low chair by the south window in the music room, stopped his whittling when Burn Webster came in with Judge Wilton. Meddlesome Mike, thought the detective. I sent for Webster. Byrne asked me to come with him, the judge explained his presence at once. We've talked things over. He thought I might help him bring out every detail, jog his memory if necessary. Hastings did not protest the arrangement. He saw almost immediately that Webster had come with no intention of giving him hearty cooperation. The motive for this lack of frankness he could not determine. It was enough that he felt the younger man's veiled antagonism and appreciated the fact that Wilton accompanied him in the role of protector. "'If I'm to get anything worthwhile out of this talk,' he decided, "'I've got to mix up my delivery, shuffle the cards, spring first one thing and then another at him, bewilder him. He proceeded with that definite design. At an opportune time he would guide the narrative, take it out of Webster's hands, and find out what he wanted to know, not merely what the young lawyer wanted to tell. He recognized the necessity of breaking down the shell of self-control that overlaid the suspected man's uneasiness. That it was only a shell, he felt sure. Webster, leaning an elbow lightly on the piano, looked down at him out of anxious eyes and continually passed his right hand over his smooth, dark brown hair from forehead to crown, a mechanical gesture of his when perplexed. His smile, too, was forced, hardly more than a slight, fixed twist of the lips, as if he strove to advertise his ability to laugh at danger. His customary dash, a pleasing levity of manner, was gone, giving place to a suggestion of strain, so that he seemed always on the alert against himself, determined to edit in advance his answer to every question. Wilton had chosen a chair which placed him directly opposite Hastings and, at the same time, enabled him to watch Webster. He was smoking a cigar, and through the haze that floated up just then from his lips, he gave the detective a long, searching look to which Hastings paid no attention. Webster talked nearly twenty minutes, explaining his eagerness to be thoroughly frank as to every detail, reviewing the evidence brought out by the inquest, and criticizing the action of the jury, but producing nothing new. Occasionally he left the piano and paced the floor, smoking interminably, lighting the fresh cigarette from the stub of the old, obviously strung to the limit of his nervous strength. Hastings detected a little twitching of the muscles at the corners of his mouth, and the too frequent winking of his eyes. Judge Wilton had told him, Webster continued, of Mrs. Brace's charge that he wanted to marry Miss Sloane, because of financial pressure. There was not a word of truth in it. He had already arranged for a loan to make that payment when it fell due, 
He was, however, aware of his unenviable position, and he wanted to give the detective every assistance possible, in that way assuring his own prompt relief from embarrassment. By this time, Hastings had mapped out his line of questioning, his assault on Webster's reticence. "'That's the right idea,' he said, getting to his feet. "'Let's go to work.' They saw the change in him. Instead of the genial, drawling, slow-moving old fellow who had seemed thankful for anything he might chance to hear, they were confronted now by an aroused, quick-thinking man whose words came from him with a sharp, clipped-off effect and whose questions scouted the whole field of their possible and probable information. He stood leaning his elbows on the other end of the piano, facing Webster across the polished length of its broad top. His dominance of the night before in the library had returned. "'Now, Mr. Webster,' he began, innocent of threat, "'as things stack up at present, only two people had the semblance of a motive for killing Mildred Brace. Either Eugene Russell killed her out of jealousy of you, or you killed her to silence her demands. Do you see that? He had put back his head a little and was peering at Webster under his spectacle rims down the line of his nose. He saw how the other fought down the impulse to deny hesitating before answering, with a laugh on a high note, like derision. "'I suppose that's what a lot of people will say.' "'Precisely. Now, I've just had a talk with this Russell, caught him after the inquest. I believe there's something rotten about that alibi of his, but I couldn't shake him, and the Otis testimony's sound. So we'll have to quit counting on Russell's proving his own guilt.' We've got that little job on our hands, and the best way to handle it is to prove your innocence. See that? The bow with which Webster acknowledged this statement was a curious mingling of grace and mockery. The detective ignored it. And, he continued, there's only one way for you to come whole out of this muddle. Frankness. I'm working for you. You know that. Tell me everything you know, and we've got a chance to win. The innocent man who tries to twist black into white is an innocent fool. He looked swiftly to Wilton, who was leaning far back in his chair, head lolling slowly from side to side, the picture of indifference. Isn't that so, Judge? Quite, Wilton agreed, pausing to remove his cigar from his mouth. "'Of course it's so,' Webster said curtly. "'I've just told you so. "'That's why I've decided, the judge and I have talked it over, "'to give you something in confidence.' "'One moment,' Hastings warned him. "'Maybe I won't take it in confidence, "'if it's something incriminating you.' "'Yes, you've phrased that unfortunately, Byrne,' "'the judge put in, tilting his head on the chair back "'to meet the detective's look. Webster was nonplussed. Apparently, his surprise came from the judge's remark, rather than from the detective's refusal to assume the role of confidant. 
Hastings inferred that Wilton, agreeing beforehand to the proposal being advanced, had changed his mind after entering the room. "'Hastings is right,' the judge concluded. "'Even if he's on your side, you can't expect him to be tied up blind that way by a suspected man, and you're just that, Byrne.' Seeing Webster's uncertainty, Hastings took another course. "'I think I know what you're talking about, Mr. Webster,' he said matter-of-fact. "'Your nail-files missing from your dressing-case. Disappeared since yesterday morning.' "'You know that,' Byrne flashed, suddenly angry, "'and you're holding it over me.' Open hostility was in every feature of his face. His lips twitched to the sharp intake of his breath. "'Why don't you look at it another way?' the old man countered quickly. "'If I'd told the coroner about it, if I'd told him also that the size of that nail file, judging from the rest of the dressing case, matched that of the one used for the blade of the dagger, matched it as well as Russell's, what then?' "'He's right, Byrne,' Wilton cautioned again. He's taken the friendly course. I understand that, Judge, Burns said, and, without answering Hastings, turned squarely to Wilton. But it's a thin clue. He admits Russell lost a nail file, too. Several years ago, Hastings goaded, so that Webster pivoted on his heel to face him. You lost yours when? Last night? This morning? I don't know. I noticed its absence this morning. There you are. But, Hastings qualified to avoid the quarrel, the nail file isn't much of a clue, if unsupported. He approached cordiality. And I appreciate your intending to tell me. That was what you intended to give me in confidence, wasn't it? Yes, Webster answered, half sullen. Hastings changed the subject again. "'Did you know Mildred Brace intended to clear out, leave Washington today?' "'Why, no!' Webster shot that out in genuine surprise. "'I got it from Russell,' Hastings informed, and went at once to another topic. "'And that brings us to the letter. Judge Wilton tell you about that?' Webster was lighting a cigarette, with difficulty holding the fire of the old one to the end of the new. The operation seemed to entail hard labor for him. "'In the gray envelope?' he responded, drawing on the cigarette. "'Yes. I didn't get it.' He took off his coat. The heat oppressed him. At frequent intervals he passed his handkerchief around the inside of his collar, which was wilting. Now, more than ever, he gave the impression of exaggerated watchfulness, as if he attempted provision of the detective's questions. "'Nobody got it, so far as I can learn,' Hastings said, a note of sternness breaking through the surface of his tone. "'It vanished into thin air. That's the most mysterious thing about this mysterious murder.' He, in his turn, began pacing the floor, a short distance to and fro in front of Judge Wilton's chair, 
his hands behind him, flopping the baggy tail of his coat from side to side. "'You doubtless see the gravity of the facts. That letter was mailed to Sloanehurst. Russell has just told me so. She waved it in his face, to taunt him about you, before she dropped it into the mailbox. "'He swears—' Hastings stopped at the far end of his pacing and looked hard at Webster. It was addressed to you. Webster, again with his queer, high-pitched laugh, like derision, threw back his head and took two long strides toward the center of the room. There he stood a moment, hands in his pockets, while he stared at the toe of his right shoe, which he was carefully adjusting to a crack in the flooring. Judge Wilton made his chair crackle as he moved to look at Webster. It was the weight of the detective's gaze, however, that drew the lawyer's attention. When he looked up, his eyes were half-closed, as if the light had suddenly become painful to them. "'That would be Russell's game, wouldn't it?' he retorted at last. "'Mrs. Brace told me the same thing,' Hastings said quietly, flashing a look at Wilton and back to the other. "'Damn her!' Webster broke forth with such vehemence that Wilton stared at him in amazement. "'Damn her! And that's the first time I ever said that of a woman. It's as I suspected, as I expected. She's begun some sort of a crooked game.' He trembled like a man with a chill. Hastings gave him no time to recover himself. "'You know Mrs. Brace, then? Know her well?' he pressed. "'Well enough,' Webster retorted with hot repugnance. "'Well enough, although I never had but one conversation with her, if you may call that bedlam wildness a conversation. She came to my office the second day after I'd dismissed her daughter. She made a scene. She charged me with ruining her daughter's life, threatened suit for breach of promise.' She said she'd get even with me if it took her the rest of her life. I don't as a rule pay much attention to violent women, Mr. Hastings, but there was something about her that affected me strongly. She's implacable, and like stone, not like a woman. You saw her. Understand what I mean? Perfectly, agreed Hastings. There flashed across his mind a picture of that incomprehensible woman's face. The black line of her eyebrows lifted halfway to her hair, the abnormal wetness of her lips thickened by a sneer. If she's been after this man for two weeks, he thought, I can understand his trembles. But he hurried the inquiry. So, you think she lied about that letter? Of course! Webster laughed on a high note. Next, I suppose she'll produce the letter. She can't very well do that. Something in his voice alarmed the suspected man. What do you mean? he asked. Hastings smiled. What do you mean? Webster asked again, his voice lowered, and came a step nearer to the detective. Hastings took a piece of paper from his pocket. 
"'Here's the flap of the gray envelope,' he said, as if that was all the information he meant to impart. Webster urged him with eyes and voice. "'Well?' "'And on the back of it is some of Mildred Brace's handwriting.' The old man examined the piece of paper with every show of absorption. He could hear Webster's hurried breathing and the gulp when he swallowed the lump in his throat. The scene had got hold of Wilton also. Leaning forward in his chair, his lips half parted, the thumb and forefinger of his right hand mechanically fubbing out his cigar so that a little stream of fire trickled to the floor, he gazed unwinking at the envelope flap. Webster went a step nearer to Hastings and stood, passing his hand across the top of his head and staring again out of his half-closed eyes as if the light had hurt them. "'And,' the old man said, regarding Webster keenly, but keeping any hint of accusation out of his voice, "'I found it last night in the fireplace.' behind the screen, in your room upstairs. He paused, looking toward the door, his attention caught by a noise in the hall. Webster laughed on the high derisive note. He was noticeably pale. "'Come, man,' Judge Wilton said, harsh and imperious. "'Can't you see the boy's suffering? What's written on it?' "'What difference does it make, the writing?' Webster objected, with a movement of his shoulders that looked like a great effort to pull himself together. "'If there's any at all, it's faked. Faked. That's what it is. People don't write on the inside of envelope flaps.' His face did not express the assurance he tried to put into his voice. He went back to the piano and leaned on it his posture such that it might have indicated a nonchalant ease, or, equally well, might have betrayed his desperate need of support. "'This letter incident can't be waved away,' Hastings, without handing over the scrap of envelope, proceeded in even measured tones, using his sentences as if they were hammers with which he assailed the young lawyer's remnants of self-control." "'You're not trifling with a jury, Mr. Webster. "'I believe I know as much about the value of facts, "'this kind of facts, as you do. "'Consider what you're up against. "'You—' "'Webster put up a hand in protest, "'the fingers so unsteady that they dropped the cigarette "'which he had been on the point of lighting. "'Just a moment,' the old man commanded him. This Mildred Brace claimed she had suffered injury at your hands. You fired her out of your office. She and her mother afterwards pursued you. She came out here in the middle of the night where she knew you were. She was murdered, and by a weapon whose blade may have been fashioned from an article you possessed, an article which is now missing, missing since you came to Sloanehurst this time. You were found bending over the dead body. Her mother and her closest friend, her would-be fiancé, say she wrote to you Friday night, addressing her letter to Sloanehurst. The flap of an envelope, identified by her mother and friend, 
and bearing the impression in ink of her handwriting, is found in the fireplace of your room here. The man who followed her out here, who might have been suspected of the murder, has proved an alibi. Now, I ask you, as a lawyer and a sensible man, who's going to believe that she came out here without having notified you of her coming? Who, as fact stands now, is going to believe anything but that you, desperate with the fear that she would make revelations which would prevent your marriage to Miss Sloane, and keep you from access to an immense amount of money which you needed, who's going to believe you didn't kill her, didn't strike her down, there in the night, according to a premeditated plan, with a dagger, which, for better protection of yourself, you had manufactured in a way which you hoped would make it beyond identification. Who's... Wilton intervened again. What's your object, Hastings? he demanded, springing from his chair. You're treating Byrne as if he'd killed the woman and you could prove it. Webster was swaying on his feet, falling a little away from the piano and reeling against it again, his elbows sliding back and forth on its top. He was extremely pale. Even his lips, still stiff and twisted to what he thought was a belittling smile, were white. He looked at the detective as a man might gaze at an advancing terror which he could neither resist nor flee. His going to pieces was so complete, so absolute, that it astonished Hastings. "'And you, both of you,' the old man retorted to Wilton's protest, "'you're treating me as if I were a meddlesome outsider intent on framing up a case, instead of the representative of the Sloan family.' at least of Miss Lucille Sloan. Why's that? "'Tell me what's on that paper,' Webster said hoarsely, as if he had not heard the colloquy of the other two. He held up a trembling hand, but without taking a step. He still swayed, like a man dangling on strings, against the piano. "'Yes, tell him,' urged Wilton. Hastings handed Webster the envelope flap. Instead of looking at it, Webster let it drop on the piano. One of the words, Hastings said, is pursuit. The other two are uncompleted. And it's her handwriting, the daughter's, Wilton said. Beyond a doubt. Webster kept his unwinking eyes on the detective apparently unable to break the spell that held him. For a long moment he had said nothing. When he did speak, it was with manifest difficulty. His words came in a screaming whisper. "'Then I'm in desperate shape.' "'Nonsense, man,' Judge Wilton protested, his voice raised, and going to his side, struck him sharply between the shoulders. Get yourself together, Byrne. Brace up. The effect on the collapsing man was, in a way, magical. He stood erect in response to the blow, his elbows no longer seeking support on the piano. He got his eyes away from Hastings and looked at the judge as a man coming out of a sound sleep might have done. 
For a few seconds he had one hand over his mouth, as if by actual manipulation he would gain control of the muscles of his lips. "'I feel better,' he said at last, dropping the hand from before his face and squaring his shoulders. "'I don't know what hit me. If I'd—you know,' he hesitated, frowning, "'if I'd killed the woman, I could have acted the coward more thoroughly.' Hastings went through with what he wanted to say. "'About that letter, Mr. Webster. Have you any idea, can you advance any theory, as to how that piece of the envelope got into your room?' Webster was passing his hand across his hair now, and breathing in a deep, gusty fashion. "'Not the faintest,' he replied hoarsely. "'That's all, then, gentlemen.' Hastings said, so abruptly that both of them started. "'We don't seem to have gone very far ahead with this business. We won't, until you, particularly you, Webster, tell me what you know. It's your own affair—' "'My dear sir,' Judge Wilton began. "'Let me finish,' Hastings spoke indignantly. "'I'm no fool. I know when I'm trifled with. Understand me. I don't say you got that letter, Mr. Webster. I don't say you ever saw it. I don't know the truth of it, yet. I do say you've deliberately refused to respond to my requests for cooperation. I do say you'd prefer to have me out of this case altogether. I know it, although I'm not clear as to your motives, or yours, Judge. You were anxious enough. You said, when we talked at Sloane's door, for me to go on with it. If you're still of that opinion, I advise you to advise your friend here to be more outspoken with me. I'll give you this straight. If I can't be corn, I won't be shucks. But I intend to be corn. I'm going to conduct this investigation as I see fit. I won't be turned aside. I won't play second to your lead." He was fine in his intensity. Astounded by his vehemence, the two men he addressed were silent, meeting his keen and steady scrutiny. He smiled, and as he did so, they were aware, with an emotion-like shock, that his whole face mirrored forth a genuine and warm self-satisfaction. The thing was as plain as if he had spoken it aloud. He had gotten out of the interview what he wanted. Their recognition of this fact increased their blankness. "'You know my position now,' he added, no longer denunciatory. "'If you change your minds, that'll be great. I want all the help I can get. And take it from me, young man, you can't afford to throw away any you can get.' "'Threats?' Webster had shot out the one word with cool insolence before the judge could begin a conciliatory remark. The change in the lawyer's manner was so unpleasant, the insult so palpably deliberate, that Hastings could not mistake the purpose back of it. Webster regarded him out of burning eyes. "'No, not threats,' Hastings answered him in a voice that was as cold as ice. I think you understand what I mean. 
I know too little, and I suspect too much, to drop my search for the murderer of that woman. Judge Wilton tried to placate him. I don't see what your complaint is, Hastings. We— A smothered, half-articulate cry from Webster interrupted him. Hastings, first to spring forward, caught the falling man by his arm, breaking the force of the fall. He had clutched the edge of the piano as his legs gave under him. That, and the quickness of the detective, made the fall more like a gentle sliding to the floor. Save for the one gurgling outcry, no word came from him. He was unconscious, his colorless lips again twisted to that poor semblance of smiling defiance which Hastings had noticed at the beginning of the interview. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline